Howdy, I'm Kate Kavanaugh, and you're listening to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast, where we're laying the groundwork for our land, ourselves, and for generations to come by looking at the way every thread of life is connected to one another. Communities above ground mirror the communities below the soil, which mirror the vast community of the cosmos. As the saying goes, as above, so below. Join me as we take a curious journey into agriculture, biology, history, spirituality, health, and so much more. I can't wait to unearth all of these incredible topics alongside you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast, where we explore the threads of what it is to be human woven into this earth, laying the groundwork for what is to come. I am your host, Kate Cavanaugh, and it just puts a smile on my face to be back here and in your ears and hopefully starting a little dialogue about the amazing guest this week. So my guest this week is Kat Bohannon, who wrote the book Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. I spent a lot of time with this book. I both listened to and read the book. I have to say at the outset that Kat is one of the most gifted narrators that I've ever listened to, despite this being her first audiobook, and it's incredibly engaging, so that's my little plug for, for giving it a listen. But I just was absolutely captivated by the writing of this book. It is it is science writing at its finest. Uh, Kat is a wordsmith and a storyteller at her heart, and the stories she tells of these various eaves and how they contributed to the evolution of the female body through milk, through womb, through perception, legs, tools, brain, voice, menopause, and love is just a deep dive and a a true compendium. And it shows that she spent 10 years of her life writing this book. I also want to say that there were aspects of this book that I may or may not have agreed with. And I liked it even more for that because it really made me reconsider my own assumptions and ask myself some big questions and dive into more research. And I think that when a book is able to do that, when a book challenges you and delights you and drives you to learn more, that that is the hallmark of, of a truly gifted writer. And with that, I wanted to do things a little bit differently. And I wanted to read my favorite excerpt from the book in hopes that it might entice you, but also because I thought that this was such a beautiful framing of the evolution of what it might mean to be human through the lens of story. And so I'm reading from, from Eve. Where are we? I have to find my, I have to find us. So 
So I think there was one moment in the evolution of human language that marked a dividing line. Before it, we were not yet human, but after it, we were. It was probably the smallest thing, neither heroic nor grand. More than likely, it was the intimate moment, probably late in the evening, in the low blue quiet before dreaming, when a single human being told the very first story. I doubt it was told to a group. If anything, it probably took shape between two people who already spent most of their time trying to talk to each other. A fussy child who needed to sleep, and a mother who needed to sleep even more. So picture a mind that has language but has never yet told or heard a story. Brief self-serving lies, yes. Exaggerations, sure. These are phenomena we find in other animals, too. Deception is ancient. But no story. No religion. No morality tales. No afterlife. No gods. No fables. No legends. No origin stories. No just-so stories. No stories at all. The mind that existed as an intelligent, creative, fully cognizant human being before the beginning of nearly everything we mark as human culture was a truly alien mind. So I pick her. The eve of the most important feature of the human voice had a mind that must have been profoundly different from human minds today. And that mind must have, at some point, in some deeply ordinary circumstance, invented the world's first story. I won't give her a name. She was probably Homo sapiens, though anatomically she could have easily been Homo neanderthalensis. Both had modern vocal instruments. Both had that characteristic swollen bulge on the left side of the brain pan that we assume signals language. Both had a widened hypoglossal nerve canal. Both had the hyoid bone and trachea in the right spot. But the timing makes Homo sapiens more likely. Somewhere between 30,000 and 50,000 years ago, human culture exploded. We went from using the same relatively simple tools to a cultural revolution, not only advancing our tools, but massively increasing the amount of art we made, burial rituals, obvious jewelry. Symbolism was suddenly everywhere. Before this revolution, there was lots of the same for a very long time. After, there was humanity everywhere you looked. Africa, the Middle East, Southern Europe, Central and South Asia, China. The change happened so quickly, it's a little suspicious, frankly. The sort of shift that gives rise to the theories that visiting aliens made us smart. The sort of rapid, inexplicable change that kept Kubrick in business. 10 or 20,000 years max. Boom. All of humanity adopted complex, symbolic culture. All of us. Everywhere. Again, most think it's the sort of speed that can happen only with language. Where genetic changes are slow, language-fueled behavioral changes can spread like wildfire. I suspect this is what happens when an intelligent species already capable of language suddenly gets symbolic narrative. And who else to tell the first story but a mother to her child? After all, while men and women were and are equally adept at language, female bodies are slightly better at up-close communication with fine detail. Most adults use the music and style of mother ease to aid language learning in children, but women do seem slightly more likely to use it and slightly more adept at it, at least in terms of pitch manipulation and adapting and responding to the unique sensory array of human infants. 
But a better reason, I suspect, is that of all the instances of communication between two people, that coupling of mother and child is the most common. She will talk more to her young child in its early life than nearly any other person. Of the many communicative scenarios involved, quite a lot of them would have to do with the child being fussy and the mother needing to find a way to soothe the child, and if not soothe, then at least instruct and hopefully amuse. Whether one is talking about historical or present-day parents, trying to distract or instruct or amuse a child with a story is a common go-to. But what was that first story about? After all, story is as much its aboutness as it as its structure. Not all tellings of events are story. I could tell you what happened today, but it would just be an uninteresting string of facts. Urgency doesn't cut it either. Even Campbell's monkeys can tell you an eagle is in the sky. No monkey is going to tell you about the eagles in Tolkien. But let's say it was a just-so story, an imaginative explaining of some feature of the world. Why snakes have no legs? What happens when we die? That still wouldn't have been all it was about. Most modern-day just-so stories have to do with the same moral quality, some set of social rules that the characters and audience need to abide by or there will be consequences. They're typically about love or familial loyalty or adherence to a social hierarchy. Yet none of these themes would have been part of the first story because little of our familiar social hierarchy would have existed. There were leaders or alphas, but nothing at all like a lord or a king. There would have been plenty of love and sex too, but nothing like marriage. Instead, maybe it would have been simpler. There is one abiding theme that stayed with humanity since the very beginning. Hunger. If the story of our ancestors is about anything, it's about survival. Hunger and migration, the unyielding force of death driving us ever forward and out into the gray line of long horizon. This is where we came from. It drives us even now. I was just really captured by the way that this story is told. The story of all of these different Eves, some in familiar homo sapien-esque bodies and some a little bit more like little squirrels. And I just really encourage everybody to pick up a copy of Eve and parse it out for yourself and really enjoy the ride while you're there. Last, If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This helps other people find Mind, Body, and Soil and delight in some of the awesome upcoming guests that we have. I look forward to hearing all about what you thought about Eve. Please drop me a DM or send me an email. And without further ado, let's dive into this interview with the incredible and also incredibly charming. To be honest, I think I I fumbled a little bit through this interview because Kat was just so well-spoken, funny, and charming. And I just couldn't really hang. And that's a beautiful thing. So here is the... Wonderful Cat Bohannon. That's what I still, it was always a, a learning curve. Um, 
So yeah. th- we're just talking about recording your audiobook and and, yeah. and how amazing I found your narration of it as somebody who's a consummate audiobook listener. I just thought you, well, you brought you. me right in. I wanted to start in a bit of a different place. You know, I've listened to a couple of interviews with you and I was really struck, you know, when you say, you just said it was a peek inside your head in your 30s. I was really struck by learning that, first of all, that you took 10 years to write Eve and it is a master journey and so deeply and beautifully researched. And I think the time that you invested in it really shows. And I know that during that time, you were also getting your PhD in narrative Uh and cognition. Yeah. Oh, and, and pregnant so often, it's like I had a uterine-based hobby, just so all the time, freaking, because I had so many miscarriages, right? So, like, I was just like, it was just this thing I did, I would get pregnant, like, repeatedly throughout my 30s, Um, just, which probably plays into my views on things in the book, let's Mm -hmm. just say. Yeah, no, I got the book deal um, literally the same month. It went up for auction, actually, because I was lucky enough to have that much interest um, as the month I needed to pass my quals exam. So your qualifying exam for a PhD is this intense time where in the humanities, usually you like have to be able to just just know your shit, you know, just really, you know, like God knows a hundred books or more. And then over in the sciences where you have to really demonstrate your knowledge of, of the scientific literature in your field. And then be grilled on it by very intimidating, very smart people at Columbia. But I had a committee split between both departments. So I had to please both of them. <laughs> so I so was not actually, a stressful time at all. I was actively losing my mind in that month, but also somehow getting a book deal on a basically unrelated topic uh, and then launching into. So I did both of those in parallel, right? Like my PhD prepped me in many ways for the brain chapter and for the voice chapter, um, you know, in that I had that background in cognitive psychology and I had that background in, uh, you know, the deep history of, of narratology and what story really is and how that can speak to like the science of it all. Mm. But, but like, I had to climb Physiology Mountain for this book. You know, I was not a physiology person at all. Yeah. Yes. And there's there's a lot of physiology in there. That's actually, that's more my background. Um, oh, okay, cool. I was, I was actually curious, though, I think because what I saw was such an incredible tie, you are telling a story. You are telling mm. a story that has a very long history. You are telling a mm-hmm. story of women. You are telling a story of bodies. You are telling a story of evolution. Mm-hmm. And I actually wanted to ask at the outset of this, because I'm hoping we can kind of revisit this idea of story throughout the interview. As somebody sure. that has a PhD in, in narrative, like what is it about story? And and story also has a bit of a recurring theme in my mind throughout Eve, whether it's discussing mm-hmm. the first story that's told or the way that we tell stories throughout time or even for, for the future generations of our species. And so I just wanted to kind of take this broad stroke and ask you, why story? And, and what can stories bring us? Well, my PhD is split between uh, the literature department and and psychology at Columbia. They don't do officially interdisciplinary PhDs, but if you're cool enough, they'll give you enough rope to hang yourself. So my committee was split. <laughs> That's how it was. Because I was running experiments, but I instead of using human subjects, I was writing computer programs to uh, chop up books, basically, and, and see what they can tell us about brains and how it aligns mm. with uh, literature and cognitive psychology. So like I had advisors over in neuro, well, I had mentors over in neuro and in comp. Uh, computer science and then 
advisors, more direct mentors and advisors in psych and literature. So um, what is story? But that's like CV background. What does story tell us about stuff in Eve and why is story so important? Why is well, story I mean, so important to you too? Yeah. It can be mm -hmm. personal. Yeah. Well, I mean, to me, it, it's not just that we are the storytelling ape. It's more like um, in a really, really deep sense, a lot of this stuff we call story is based on really, really ancient brain functionality, you know, that we... Um, across many mammals, but especially higher mammals, uh, have a sense of um, agency. So in other words, you can look out in the world and see somebody take somebody or something take an action and see the results that happen, you know, uh, that it that it might be different if you throw a rock down a hill versus uh, it falls down a hill, right? Mm -hmm. There's an intentionality, there's a theory yeah. of mind, there, right? But you don't have to be human to have that. Like a dog can get that. You know what I mean? Like it's it's very... So a lot of this stuff that we think about as this very human thing is actually built on very, very ancient cognitive stuff. You know what I mean? And the reason that's interesting to me is that um, I'm like, oh, okay. Well, in, in many ways, uh, at least for the human animal, um, story is quite literally the stuff of thought. And thought is in many ways deeply embedded in a lot of what we call story. And that idea too, that idea too that's important to me that... Um, what we are now is very much built on where we came from, that yes. very little of what we do comes de novo. Very little of what we yes. do is like unique to our species. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, which is a very evolutionary frame, which is probably from my dad. It's from when I was a kid. You know, I just grew up around the sciences, right? So um, that idea that fundamentally what we are doing is uh, a, a rebuilding of what we've always been doing in many mm. ways as novel as it seems yeah mm. is um is kind of foundational for to me and how i understand what humanity's made of I just want to briefly interrupt our scheduled programming to bring you a little bit of a word from one of our partners home of wool I, and you probably do too, spend about a third of my life in bed and I want my bed to be the most luxurious and health supporting space out there. That's why over the last few years, I have been collecting pieces from Home of Wool that are organic wool and cotton and linen and Ecotex certified materials to surround me in my sleep. And it has been huge for my comfort. First of all, with a material like wool, which they are using to fill everything from mattresses to pillows to cushions and crib materials, all of which are fully customizable, you are getting a material that is breathable, which means that it's going to keep you warm in these upcoming winter months and cool in the summer. It is free of VOCs and any off-gassing that we normally associate with traditional mattresses, traditional pillows. It regulates moisture and it's actually mildew and mold resistant, which is huge for those of us living in more humid climates. It's hypoallergenic and because it is custom made and made beyond any standards of big business, it is so 
durable and incredible. Uh, This is the way that I am ushering in a winter of rest and recovery and their their shop is amazing, honestly. And they have anything you could imagine when it comes to bedding and cushions. Again, all customizable. And they are running an incredible Black Friday sale using the code BF20 if you just follow the link in the show notes. If you're listening to this after November 27th, you can just use the code Kate Kavanaugh, K A T E. K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H at homeofwool.com to get 10% off. But through the 27th, they are running a 20% off. You can find that link in the show notes. And again, I have used them. I have a great body pillow, a duvet, and some incredible pillows as well that have just been so supportive in my sleep, helping me access just the best recovery out there. So I encourage you to check out Home of Wool. Yes, I love this because I was actually really struck by the juxtaposition in Eve of sort of past and present and and sort of jumping between the two. And you had said something in an interview um, on Fresh Air where you said that you look for evidence of our evolutionary path in the body itself because our past is written on the body. Our bodies are mm-hmm. made of where we came from. And you mm-hmm. go on to say in the book that, and I, I loved this, and I think it explains a little bit about that time, that bodies are basically units of time. What we call an individual body is a way of bounding a series of cascading events that follow self-replicating patterns until finally entropy sets in and enough goes wrong that the forces that keep you from flying apart at the seams finally let go. Species, Mm -hmm. in a way, are also units of time. And I think that in that way, you have this juxtaposition of this long lineage, this 200 million year evolution driven by the female body, and also bringing Mm -hmm. us into the present and really explaining where we came from. And and I don't quite have a question. Go for it. You know, there's this thing when we look in a mirror, we very femme-presenting, biologically female folk, probably true for all femme-presenting people, to be honest, but I don't have the authority there, only on the sort of body I have. I know at least when I look in the mirror, there are some complex things happening up in my brain. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? One of the things that's happening for sure is that I am seeing many faults, which are deeply shaped by social messages. Okay, fine. Definitely that's happening. You know... It's just, it's there, it's happening. But it's also true that because I have now spent so long thinking deeply about deep time, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Which by the way, if anyone ever does that, it automatically just makes you a little weird. You're like, yeah, I've I've, I've held hundreds of millions of years in my head, but I also have coffee on a given Tuesday morning. Sure, I'm totally normal. I have a therapist, it's fine, (laughs) right? You know, like, but, Uh but that means that when I look in the mirror, right, those two things are happening. I have this very, very normal girl head, if you like, you know, that's looking at this very femme thing and, and doing all that we do when we look in the mirror, which is complex and, and individual, but somehow shared for all femme folk. Right. Um, but I also see these deep stretches of time stretching out behind me and out in front of me, right? Because that's how evolution inevitably works with different parts of our body and different features evolving at different points, essentially. So it's like 
man, it's like we're it's like you're actually looking at this point in a stream of light cascading yes. out in front of you and exploding behind you. And this little this little dot is is the weird frame of what you see. And somehow I'm always now seeing both of those things, <laughs> which makes me really hella weird, but is is also inevitably shaping how I would write a book like this. Yes. And I think I actually weird, maybe, but I think that a lot of us here in this moment that maybe we can call the present, right, where we have the mm -hmm. light streaming behind us and streaming in front of us have become acutely aware of just how critical this little point in that stream of light is and that mm -hmm. that understanding of where we came from, where our bodies came from, where our culture came from and mm. how we evolved within this space is critical mm -hmm. to how we shape the stories that we tell going forward in yes. that, in that ray of light. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I say that um, in the last chapter of the book as well, that we are all in our way, uh, each an Eve. Yes. We, we shape our uh, species tomorrows with all of the small, seemingly inconsequential choices that we make in our given day. Yes. Whether or not we ourselves have children, that isn't actually the crucial point in a deeply interdependent species, no. that we're all shaping our tomorrows in this way. Um, and it's hard to say exactly which of us then is more critical than another for shaping that future. Actually, that's a that's a kind of toxic story we tell ourselves, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, it's it's absolutely the case that literally everything we do has some small yes. impact. Yeah. Yes, we are part of an interconnected web of life, and I think that that impact mm -hmm. can be felt in ways large and small across time. And you you say, I had this for the for the end, but let's go there. You say. Yeah. Um, but I am an Eve, as are you, just like every single living human today. We are the drivers of our species tomorrows. We are all writing the future of humanity through the choices we make day to day in these bodies we inhabit, in the children we have or help raise and protect, in the societies we push against and collaborate with and innovate on. We live at all times, both in the present and in the long rivers of evolutionary time. So these lives we're living are all the lives of an Eve. You know, I say a lot better in the book than I did just now. We'll just use that. <laughs> no, <laughs> there you I, go. There you go. <laughs> I thought it was, I, I just thought it was so beautiful. And I think that it, it lends you. such a sense of agency to this moment where a lot of yeah. us feel a so mounting helpless. sense of pressure and helplessness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to know that, that we are shaping something for the future and the choices that we make have yep. a shape for where our species is headed. Absolutely. And I think when we think about evolutionary biology, you always get both that incredible humility at realizing how incredibly goddamn small your life is in the great stretch of time. Yes, <laughs> you know? absolutely. But you also then have um, that incredible sense of agency because of knowing how impactful your life can be. It's always both. It's always both. Absolutely. It's always both. I think um, one of the things that I've found sort of interesting in novel is that um, we don't always think about science writing as something that is mm, empowering. Do you know what I mean? Mm, um, interesting. That, 
You know what I mean? That there's this way in which we think about it as, oh, you inevitably do what you do because you have no agency, you have no free will, you have no, you know what I mean? Hmm. Right? In other words, there's a diminishing of our power in in many ways, which of course, for anybody in a marginalized body, including half the damn planet, thank you, but not only, uh, people of color as well, people of various queerities as well, you know, there's that way that, well, frankly, science has been weaponized against those of us with marginalized or oppressed bodies, right? Um, but for me, I find it incredibly empowering and incredibly freeing. Um, and uh, I think people, as they read the book, are coming to understand that that's very much my position on the thing. Yes, yes, absolutely. And and to give agency, I think the book gives agency. That's an interesting thing to think about science writing. I le- read a lot of science writing a little bit more slanted towards ecology, which I find sure. often... Um, can evoke a, a great sense of of helplessness, but also yeah. a sense of what might be possible going forward. But it it can mm-hmm. it can get you in a space where you don't feel like you have much much power, where you don't feel empowered. Um, so a dear old friend of mine uh, in the UK, although I really need to catch up with him more. We've been a bit distant, but uh, is is George Mombiot. I met him mm. when I was 21 years old, and and we've been uh, first very much friends and then friendly as I've been gone uh, ever since. He wrote a blurb for my book, actually, in uh, in the UK version. Um, and I just adore George. I think he's just the best. And um, he has been, of course, an environmental journalist and an activist yep. for a long, long, long time. It's just, yep. it's not right to say that he does these things. He just is these things. And always has been, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's it ain't just a job, right? It's just it's it's woven into his being. Um, and I've always admired it, sometimes up close and sometimes from afar. But I think something he and I have both struggled with is was that feeling of helplessness. Hmm. Um, even as we we drive to help add power to the resistance, you know, in one f- space or another. But there is, of course, in the ongoing ecological catastrophe we're in, oh God, what else to call it, for God's sake, you know, um, that feeling of, oh, I don't know, what is it? What's the right metaphor? Being being tied to the tracks? But that's probably too industrial. What what, what would it be? <laughs> standing, standing on a flat shore with no mountain to get to as you watch the tsunami come in. It's just, you know, that feeling of like, yeah. You know it's coming. You can feel, yeah, I think the tsunami is right. You can kind of feel the water good, sucking out around your feet and going out into the ocean. And and as as the water level drops and you know what's coming, you know, except the only difference, of course, being that you can actually totally change the trajectory of that wave um, through your small impact and through resistance. So um, trying to tr- maintain hope is always a challenge. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And important, important to work towards maintaining that hope and finding those things that give you grounding in mm-hmm. hope um, and mm-hmm. in a sense of agency. I, what gave you hope when you read Eve? Ooh, what gave me hope when I read Eve? Mm-hmm. To be honest, for me, I also spend a good deal of time thinking about deep time. Mm. And I think for me, the perspective of deep time is a hopeful one, Mm. that I feel that the machinations of earth and evolution and now the sense of, of culture have throughout deep time a way of coming to homeostasis and coming to a 
a space of reciprocity between environment and culture and bodies and evolution. Um, and I think taking that long haul view and starting with Morgi underneath sort of the ashes and the fall of, mm. of this one species and seeing her contribution of lactation and of, of looking at milk and lactation and how it evolved over the course of things. That sense of deep time gave me hope. And I think a lot about the sixth mass extinction event and this sort of moment in history that we find ourselves in and find yeah. hope in the biodiversity and the evolution that's possible, whether that is within the human species or beyond it. And I think mm -hmm. that Eve was a reminder of that for me and mm. of a sense of choice. And I think that word is echoed throughout the book of mm, in all what the we senses choose of it. now. Yes, in all the senses, that word is echoed throughout the book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do find some weird... I use the word weird a lot because actually the English language fails sometimes to capture these things. That weird sense of comfort in thinking about Morgie and this little, this little like weaselly, squirrely beast squirming around in there, you know, with her belly dragging on the ground because she doesn't even have the upright pelvis yet, for God's <laughs> sake. She's just very much a furry pseudo lizard. She's great. Um, and she, of course, being why I have boobs is, uh, is fun for me, but also a comfort for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, she's mostly why I have, uh, mammary, uh, tissue actually, because of course we don't have anything like the human breast for a hell a long time, probably very, very recently, long time. very, very long time, but not even nipples for a really, really long time, actually that we milk before we make nipples. And actually, while it is true that I got mastitis twice while I was writing the milk chapter, which was just like, oh God, um, you know, no, I, I because I, I didn't write everything laughing. in an order, right? No, mm -hmm. I'm laughing too, because I'm like, seriously though, like I also had an ectopic pregnancy when I was working on the womb chapter. Again, I didn't do it all mm. in order. And I'm like, well, I should never write the menopause chapter, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, ah, shit. No, it's true. Not just to bring it on earlier, but the menopause chapter is literally about death. So I'm just... I'm very glad that I didn't die writing that. Uh, you get suspicious after a while. But no, it's I, I found it comforting at the very least that when my own child was so very, very bad at drawing milk out of me. He was just, my first child was just not good at latching at all. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's because um, this is a more recent add-on. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Kind of like when you update your phone and it's still a little buggy for a while, you know, because they haven't worked out all the goddamn kinks and that actually many of our features of our body and our behavior are not perfectly suited to fit are actually we're not good at a lot of things that we call most natural that actually a lot of kids struggle to latch for many, many reasons, one of which is simply that this is a newer feature than the milk making in many ways. Right. And so that at least removed some of the like you know, social bullshit around success that a lot of women take on with lactation, especially yes. these days, yes. you know, like, am I doing it right? I'm like, maybe your kid's not doing it right though. Okay, honey. It's all right. It's all right. Be kinder to yourself, please. All mothers everywhere. Um, but also, but also simply that like, oh, oh, many of these things actually 
do suck. It's not just that I'm interpreting it badly or that I'm somehow built wrong, right? That actually, uh, this is this is you know we're we're like cars with like a bumper duct taped on. You know that all of our body features are just upgrades on existing systems mm-hmm. that don't ever perfectly fit. You know the idea of the body as this exquisitely tuned thing. No, 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 no. No, no, no. We are just barely hanging on here in these absurd mammalian bodies that are already absurd and then human on top. Oh, no, 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 no. When things go wrong, this should feel like, oh, well, of course it did. I'm curious what your stance is, just just as you bring that up. I'm a little bit curious, you know, how the lens, because sometimes... Absolutely. We have these add-ons and these sort of stacked functionalities, right? And you Mm. talk about this with like a very ancient bladder tucked Mm -hmm. into a fairly new pelvic inlet and and sort of the stacking that happens. But I think too about the, the sort of modern lens of we are a little bit discordant some with the environment that we would have evolved in. And there Mm -hmm. are a lot of different ways that this could manifest itself that we're a little bit more sedentary than we would have been maybe 10,000 years ago. Um, Agriculture shifts and changes a lot. And so there are some mismatches in sort of modern, hmm, modern lifestyle, modern culture with the way that our bodies have evolved that have come on very quickly, whether it's the last 10 to 12,000 years since the agricultural revolution or really just since the industrial revolution that really shifted a lot of our ways of being and eating and moving in the world. And many of these are actually deeply tied to female physiology. Um, So your listeners may or may not know that you have very pale skin. And so do I, actually. It would look even paler if it weren't for the lighting I'm in. I am extremely freaking pale, okay? I was white blonde when I was a baby. So um, there's this thing, of course, where we assume a continuity, but no, this only starts about 10,000 years ago, very much around the dawn of agriculture. And this is Nina Jablonski's work, and she's just a brilliant, brilliant scientist. Um, And if you ever talk to her, you know, get get her story. She did a beautiful book called Skin. And there is this idea that... um, Really, as recently as 10,000 years ago, the vast majority of human beings in the world were um, had more melanin in their skin. Um, and in part, we only have a shift, and only some of us, by the way, and still very much a minority in the world, um, had a shift to paler skin in a few different places, which largely was tied to vitamin D. Um, yeah, that uh, we receive uh, vitamin D through from sunlight and exposure to skin, but the, and you go into paler plate, uh, dimmer. That's right, where dimmer places in the world. Usually, we think about the north, but sometimes it's an elevation thing. Uh, and uh, suddenly, uh, particularly females are not receiving enough vitamin D, and then their mm-hmm. kids are born and get rickets. So that's no mm-hmm. great, right? Nope. So that there's a way in which there can be a shift to paler skin in these sorts of environments. But we always assume this is a natural, gradual thing. No, no, no. We didn't shift to that right away. It was only right around agricultural stuff, particularly in various spots in the Middle East and Europe, where um, suddenly our diet is garbage. We are subsisting on 
gruel and poison because yes. we have no idea how to do this, right? No. Because at this point, and let me just quickly also mention, agriculture actually evolves in many different places in the world at mm -hmm. different times. So this isn't mm -hmm. a single teleological moment, this revolution. Actually, there have been many agricultural revolutions yes. throughout the human community throughout time. But in this one that I'm talking about where we get this thing where you and I now get sunburns, this thing, right? Um, what's happening there is that... Um, we have to shift over, and this is, again, Jablonski's work, from uh, a model of skin that uh, is totally fine being a little bit more melanin-rich because we're getting more vitamin D, usually from organ meat and other mm -hmm. kinds of hunting-based yep. stuff, right? And then now we're surviving on poisonous gruel. And so, okay, and then we, you know, and then after many sickly dying people, do you get pale skin? That this is actually evidence of sick dying folk and just a few of us surviving happening to be pale. But the interesting thing about that actually is if you rewind much, much farther back before any out of Africa migrations, you actually have populations of hominins who do not have dark skin uh, at all. Remember that the chimpanzee doesn't actually have dark skin. They're born pink and then they get a bit mottled under their fur. Um, so you only arrive at melanin-rich skin after the loss of fur. And again, Jablonski does this beautiful work where the, that again is a female story because when you have pale skin, uh, you get folate depletion. Now, if you've ever been pregnant, you're told to take a folate yes, supplement. You've absolutely. heard this? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We've talked about this on the podcast too. Oh, oh, this whole skin thing you've already talked about. Uh, no, no, the no. folate thing in particular. The folate thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the cool thing about what Jablonski talks about is like, um, and none of this is an Eve, by the way. I was going to have a hair chapter, and then I decided not to because I didn't want the opening of my chapter to be all about race as a white lady writing it. I mean, for God's sake, right? Obviously not. So anyway, and also skin is and isn't anything like race, and also race is an invented category. Moving on, right? So, so here you have these very chimpy things with this pink and mottled skin that does darken in response to the sun, but is having folate depletion and folate being very important for uh, rapidly replicating cells. The reason if you have an ectopic pregnancy, they give you a shot of methotrexate in your butt muscle, which happened to me, is because it rapidly depletes your folate levels and that makes it harder for rapidly multiplying cells to do oh. what they do. And you don't get more rapidly replicating cells than you do in an embryo and placenta. That's why it works. That's why they give you that shot. And that's what saves your life if you don't have to go in for surgery. Okay. Anyway, yeah. so in ancient times, we evolved dark skin precisely because it helps bolster the folate levels, which is better for uh, female pregnancy in very, very ancient beings. So anyway, yeah. Um, where did I come from all of that? <laughs> came from sort of the modern, the modern mismatch and just how quickly things modern can mismatch. actually yeah, yeah, occur. Yeah, 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 yeah. So a lot of how we assume, we, we do a lot of assumptions that are based on contemporary cultural understandings of the body mm -hmm. about why a certain body trait evolves or does not, right? Yes. Like, for example, assuming that agriculture was a really awesome thing for the evolution of our species. Ooh, not necessarily the case. I don't make case. that assumption. I try but to never many make do. that assumption. Yes, yeah, but many, many do. Many, many yes. do. Oh, many but do. the really to cool the point, thing about the human body is how very adaptable we are. We are. And actually, there's a lot of evidence for many, many different dietary strategies in human history. And you can see that not only yes. in like historical stuff and what's found around campfires and what have you in the archaeological record, but even in our microbiome. Yes. Uh, and how they differ in space to space and also in our freaking breast milk. Also yes. actually in our yes. freaking breast milk and its variety and how uh, it seems to adapt to our local environment. And that I thought was really, really cool when I was working on that chapter. 
Absolutely incredible. This is something I talked to. I don't know if you're familiar with Alana Collin, who wrote 10% Human 10 years ago, sort of at the beginning of the conversations around microbiomes. And her and I had a deep conversation about how your breast milk and your gut microbiota are actually talking to one another and talking with the baby in conjunction. Um, Yep, yep. Which actually kind of brings me to the next space I wanted to explore because there is and you are very good at illuminating, there's this context. And as I thought about it, as I see it, there's this interplay between our environment, our bodies, our culture, and our behavior that is pushing forward evolution. And it's not any one thing within that. Um, And each piece plays a role. And you pull in both the cultural aspect, which I think is really important to tease, to tease out and to take a look at sort of the way that we hold up culture as a lens and look through it and see evolution in some of these assumptions that we make um, Mm -hmm. and how that can kind of color our, our ideas around it. And so, and so that's one piece, but you also, and we just spoke to this, so much of this happens within the context of the mother baby dyad. Uh, So much of this evolution throughout the course of Eve is happening in that relationship, which I think is, is just such a beautiful thing. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I wonder maybe first if you can speak to some of that sort of the interaction of environment, bodies, and culture, and that social context, that lens that we often hold up and look through at evolution, and maybe make some assumptions. Oh, God. Well, there's just probably too much to do there, but I'll give it a shot. I would just offer at the very least that... um, it is not the case that we push evolution forward, that, but that we inevitably evolve. It's more like mm. that. And what Thank I mean you. by that is yes. that there's no, 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 but I, the, I, that's important, not as a correction, but rather as a continuation, that um, we inevitably uh, are situated in these bodies which are fundamentally inseparable from the environment in which they mm-hmm. exist, um, that we are not in a place, but we are of a place. Yes. Yeah, that's like yes. a really important distinction and li- and that we always have been. And of course, one of the distinctive and interesting features of our body plan and our uh, deep sociality, which is an extension of that body plan, because, of course, mm-hmm. the brain is an organ. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, is uh, so very adaptable uh, and always has been. That's actually a huge part of the so-called success of our species, that we are as widely distributed across the planet as we are. The only reason we are is because we're so goddamn adaptable. And that's really, really interesting. But that also means, of course, that um, you take that highly adaptable behavior, that's our most greatly adaptable thing, and this omnivorous, flexible diet thing that we have, where we can have many different models that will still work pretty well to produce whatever you want to call health, right? Um, But that it's also being influenced by these differing environments. And some things we are better suited to quickly adapt to, and some things take a little bit longer, right? Um, For example, you can absolutely change your uh, diet. And it might take a little while, and you're probably going to have some digestive issues if you do it too severely and too quickly, because microbiome being what it is, fine. You know, you might have the runs for a while if you really radically shift, et cetera, right? Yeah, that happens to literally everybody. So, right. But it's also true that like that's a thing you can pretty well adapt to. There are some things that are a lot 
harder. I think Chris Van Tullican's been doing a great mm-hmm. job uh, talking about ultra processed food. I met him out in the UK um, and how some things are just, well, they're just really a lot harder to be okay with. Uh, yes. having a body like ours. How about yes. that? Right? Yes. But and then there are some things. Chris Van Tullican's book is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's great. Um, but also, also importantly, there are some things that are just simply much older and much harder to adapt to as hard as we might try, like the night shift. Yeah. Yes. So absolutely. Um, given that we are diurnal, now we have different sort of person to person, different sleep points. Some of us just are night owls. That's just a thing. You know, some of that has to do with artificial lighting and some of it doesn't, frankly, um, because even in, in, uh, communities that don't have, um, uh, artificial lighting, you'll still see slightly different natural sleep points, you know, in mm-hmm. the community, right? That's just like, you know, when you fall asleep is both your lighting, but also just who you are. That's a yes. thing. But really none of us are truly nocturnal. And of course that's because, uh, we are diurnal primates. We just evolved along that path a very long time ago. And those of us who have ovaries <laughs> and uh, uh, 2X chromosomes are even more exquisitely tied, it seems, to the circadian rhythm in ways that uh, folk who have different gonads uh, seem to be slightly less so, right? And that's a really interesting problem for um, cis women. Uh, and other folk with ovaries who take the night shift, uh, in part because it's not simply the ovaries, but also the liver that are deeply interacting with the brain to respond to the circadian cycle. And when we radically break it, when we radically shift away from daylight signals, particularly if, you know, if we go in and out of such a thing, um, our ovaries flip the hell out. I don't know how else to describe that. They just don't, you know, um, and that isn't simply a matter of upregulating our inflammation patterns. That isn't simply a matter of how uh, deeply screwy our ovulation in general might be if we even continue to ovulate. Fertility is really a major thing for females on the night shift, right? But also our, our brain repair and functionality and immunology and just everything gets that much more out of whack, it seems, if you are a female person on the night shift. And we're only just starting to see that research coming out, but it has real social good impacts. You know, it really helps explain um, to so many uh, women with this pattern when they go into the clinic and say, this is going down in me, not feeling like it's all in their head, you know? Yes. Absolutely. And I think some of the circadian biology that's coming out of uh, various people um, across the world is critical to understanding health and, and, and women's health uh, in particular too. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I wondered if we might touch on social context. And I think this is, this is still kind of teasing at that same line of questioning of how we view things. I was really struck by your story about tetrachromats. In, in the face of Eve. And you say at one point, you say, well, men and women live in many ways in different sensory worlds. What we share is social context. Because we're mm-hmm. so fundamentally and deeply social primates, the social context of our perceived worlds influences how we interpret and act on the signals brought to us through our sensory array. Change the mm-hmm. context and you're very likely to change the perception. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I thought this was a fantastic lens of just how much the built world that we're inculcated in Mm -hmm. can inform the way our biology is functioning. And within this, and and I don't want to butcher it, you kind of tell the story of tetrachromats in this. I think it's 12% Mm -hmm. of- That's the estimate. Yeah. 
of folks with XX chromosomes that have the ability to see many more colors and do millions not, more, millions more colors, mm-hmm. and do not express this because of the context that our world is in. Do not. Um, it's right. more. It's hard to call it yeah. express. I mean, inevitably, they're going to have them extra opsins. You know what I mean? They're going to yeah. have retinas that are built in this slightly different way. Um, so, for your for your listeners, the tetrachromat means we're trichromatic. Um, most of us, which is to see, say we have essentially three major color, you know, groups. Um, and this is tied to genes on the X chromosome. So if you have two of them, there you go. Well, there's a funny thing that happens where if you have two X chromosomes, there is a possibility of being a tetrachromat. So having an extra. And that doesn't mean that suddenly you can see ultraviolet the way birds do. Um, <laughs> But like birds, you do have the ability to detect much finer differences in color, particularly along the red-green differentiation, but not only, right, uh, than you would if you didn't have retinas like that. And the funny thing is, is that because we simply have the sex chromosome arrangement we do, that means that, yes, as many as maybe 12% of all human cis girls are born with this innate ability to see the world more like birds, like secret superheroes. It's kind of crazy, but most of them don't. And so what you're drilling down into there is that um, it's not simply our sensory array and what signals it sends to our brains. Our hypersocial brains and our hyper-aware developing brains as we grow through childhood are also responding to the usefulness of signals in our environment and are deeply shaped by what is useful to pay attention to and what isn't. Or Useful might be a weird word. How about rewarding? What are we being rewarded by, by spending the cognitive energy, if you like, uh, paying attention to one thing or another? The vast majority of people in the world are trichromats. And so we live in a world that rewards trichromatism. Yeah? Yes. Picture, uh, picture a stoplight, you know? You've got your red and your yellow and your green. Yeah. Now, usefully, it tends to be in a certain order for all of the uh, cis males out there who have red green color blindness, which kind of screws them in such an environment where it's all a little bit kind of like brown. Uh, my husband, in fact, has red green color blindness and will regularly ask me for the red blanket. And I will tell him, you mean the dark brown blanket that I am holding that doesn't have a drop of red in it. And he's like, yeah, 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 whatever. Give me that thing. I want that because I'm cold. And he got, you know, and it doesn't harm him that much. Right. Um, but the tetrachromats, what's interesting there is that somehow um, because it's so unrewarded having this secret superhero power, as it were, it, it may never r- rise to the level of consciousness that you see what you're seeing. And you may never have even had a conversation with anyone if you're such a person about what you're seeing because how often do you or I talk about the fine gradations of what we're seeing if we're not like in the arts or something? You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to tell you what one kind of red hair looks like to me and try and compare it and see if it jives with yours. We just have this language. And the thing about language is that shapes our perceptive understanding of things too. Very famously, the Himba tribe, um, you know, has... uh, only one color uh, for differentiating between blue and white, if I'm remembering right, or it might be more like blue and transparent. So they have one word in their language for something, the sky, which also looks like water, which also looks like clear stuff. But they have many, many different names for different types of green, which is deeply tied to their environment. So when uh, famously some psychologists gave them some speed tests for recognizing color differentiation, 
They were much, much faster at differentiating between different kinds of color uh, in, in greens and were um, like literally rapidly able to then accurately pinpoint it even without picking the name of the thing in their language, you see, just like clicking on a box, what's mm -hmm. different here, yeah, uh, than people who did not have that linguistic background, but were a bit crap at differentiating, uh, you know, blue from clear from, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's not that they could not then be trained to, and likewise in the opposite direction, people for, with different linguistic backgrounds. So it's not like it's a permanent thing, but it is a default thing. Language absolutely shapes how we understand the world we see and how we think about it. Yes, absolutely. And the stories that we tell in those languages yes. and the things we build with our bodies within those worlds are yep. going to be a part of how we then see the world and how yep. we see past present and future too. Absolutely. Yep. I I just thought that that was a really a, a beautiful sort of peek into the way that our our world can be shaped. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That um inevitably it's not the case that we all perceive, literally perceive, whether or not you're a sighted person or a person who can hear. But even in the average sensory array, right? Mm -hmm. one to another, we're still in many ways subtly perceiving the world slightly differently. And then having those subtle and beautiful glittering differences between us a bit washed out by cultural norms, mm -hmm. sometimes in good and useful ways and sometimes in really, frankly, sort of evil ways, yes. right? <laughs> it's both. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. You said that perfectly. Um, I want to I want to take a little bit of a U-turn, and I want to talk okay. about both menstruation and menopause. This was okay. this was such a fantastic point in the book because it, amongst the animal kingdom, menstruation and menopause as we experience it as Homo sapiens is a relative rarity, if I have mm -hmm. that correct, and mm -hmm. it's functionality and how it's it's building both our bodies and culture i think in 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 both respects though i'm thinking about it more in terms of menopause is mm -hmm. is really incredible and i just wanted to at least touch on why we might have this very different experience than many animals in the animal kingdom so menopause seems to be uh, remarkably unique in that it's pretty much us and four or five species of toothed whale, which we've only recently learned about because it's very hard to study things that live in deep water. Mm -hmm. You have to get a boat and shit, right? Mm -hmm. So um, so there's that. And oh, and one of them seems to be the narwhal as well, which is just another way that narwhals are cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, you little freaky unicorn beast. Sure. You also have menopause. Moving on. Of course you do. Anyway, um, but the one that we know most about behaviorally is the transient orca, um, the transient killer whale pods, which are matriarchal. Our menstruation, however, is still very rare, but not as rare as that. Yes. The thing that's interesting and rare about our menstruation, as you saw in the book, it's not so much whether or not this obnoxious, slightly smelly, bloody stuff comes out of our nether bits. In other words, whether we reabsorb it eternally or in it, whether it goes out externally, that actually varies widely. You even get that in dog. It's like, whatever. We're yes. messy, okay? It's messy to be a mammal. Fine. Yes. Which, you don't have to like it. It's just your body, right? Um, but no, what's unique and interesting about us is that we start um, built, mm, how to say this? We have decisions. 
We have spontaneous deciduation, which means we start building up our uterine lining whether or not our uterus gets a signal from a fertilized egg rolling down the fallopian tube. And yes. that's what's unusual in mammals. There aren't that many that do that. And there was this really beautiful paper that mapped which species do that. And the thing that all of those have in common, including us, is that we have deeply invasive placentas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's what was interesting. It was like, oh, why do we build up our uterine lining the way we do? And that's, of course, why we need to shed it, because we've just built up all of this hillocked, you know, uh, bloody tissue that's just like ready to like, you know, brace ourselves against an invasive placenta if need be. But of course, you don't want to keep maintaining that all the time. So you just keep cycling it out um, every month. And that's that's why we have tampons. That, that's what that is, right? But the reason that that's the case is because, oh, in each of the cases, this species is more like building up a kind of useful barrier to a placenta that's going to be coming in and literally invading, actually really a bit like an invading army. Um, and if we didn't have that uh, that deep, thick tissue that's uh, all woven through with uh, blood vessels, um, you know, it's very likely that a placenta like that could then bleed out. So I met an OB um, recently who had a patient that had had one fallopian tube removed. So, you know, picture you got your one arm out and then on the other side of the uterus, you have a stitched up point. Well healed over, scar tissue, whatever, that's fine, right? But this person uh, became pregnant and that pregnancy implanted right in the damn scar tissue near the old fallopian mm. tube where it would have been, right? And so this patient is being monitored very, very carefully. And here's why. Because our placentas are as invasive as they are, if that placenta breaks open that scar tissue, that patient could bleed out very quickly, right? Yes. So when you think sure. about menstruating, you have to think about... Uh, Okay, it's the lining that's building up to provide not simply a cushion, not simply a support, but actually a protection for the maternal body, right? Because actually it's incredibly dangerous to become pregnant the way that we do. We have many fail-safes. The majority of human pregnancies do not result in the active death of the mother. It's just that it's a risk, right? And so when you have things that go... this The reason I think about this OB's story about her patient is that it's just another case where it's like, oh, actually, we are menstruating the way we do because the alternative would be very dangerous, particularly for our species, right? Because mm. our pregnancies are actually a little more like trench warfare than they are a sweet, cuddly, you know, cushion and that, you know, supports the baby and then whatever, right? No, it's more like, oh, dear God, don't kill me. It's more like that, <laughs> right? And then I didn't, had you wanted me to speak to menopause? Um, I can. Do you, it's up to you. We, I mean, we can go a couple of different places. I mean, I think that, I, I think that speaking to menstruation and, and why, um, especially looking at our invasive placentas and how much that confers, I mean, I, both a fascinating, and I do want to say this too, like the placenta is a fascinating protection of, of mother and baby and communication between the two. Like it is, a mm -hmm. And competition between the two, actually. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. But there is a, a sort of portal like aspect to the, the yep. placenta in this sort of bi-directional communication sure. that yes. is yes. happening and 
is incredible. And so I think it's, it's beautiful to just kind of better understand that it is this placenta that causes the way in which we menstruate. And I know we've, mm-hmm. we've talked a lot about agriculture on this, on this podcast. So most of us are familiar that most of our animals do not have a sort of outward bleeding during their during sure. most most mammals don't their, yeah most mammals do yeah. not they just reabsorb um, it yep and because think, you know waste not want not absolutely. it just turns out in it's, our body for whatever stupid reason it would have been more metabolically costly to just reabsorb the stuff than uh, give us a fate of tampons and pads you know it's just yes it's just that that annoyingly um partially because of gravity probably but not only it's it's a uh, it's just easier to just shed the stuff, which annoyingly then is built into these uterine cramp things, which is actually the, you know, almost vibratory squeezing out to slough off, mm-hmm. right, the uh, the lining, which then uh, causes us regular pain. So that's mm-hmm. fun. Thanks, evolution. Cheers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The interesting thing I find about the placenta, well, fascinating in general, and that could be its own podcast. But um, in this case, about its ties to human menstruation and the shedding of the lining. What's interesting is that the placenta is made of two plates, actually. Think of it like two dinner plates kind of stacked on top of each other, but it's not quite the right metaphor, but run with it. It's two things stacked. There's the basal plate, and then there's that top plate. And the basal plate is actually made of maternal tissue, It's made of your uterus, if you happen to have one. And the top plate is actually made of embryonic material, right? So it's one of the only organs in the entire animal kingdom made of two genetically different beings, effectively, uh, coexisting and producing one organ. Yeah. Mm. And that's, honestly, for a biologist, it's a little nuts. For an average person, we can kind of like, we, you know, we storied apes. We're like, yeah, I can build a metaphor out of that. Sure, sure. Mama, baby, we, you know, we do a thing together. Fine. In our heads, we can do that. But in biology, that shit be crazy. It is crazy to make one organ out of two things, but we do it. And that's, and that's the placenta. Yeah. And, and does menstruation. I do, Mm -hmm. I do want to touch on menopause a little bit. I think especially because you take a very different lens than Kristen Hawk's grandmother Mm -hmm. hypothesis. And I do. I love her work. Kristen Hawk's is so freaking foundational to how we think about the evolution of menopause that I can only wave her flag. I really, really respect everything that she's done to call attention to the evolution of menopause and give it possible frames. And it's just, we are indebted to her work. That I take a different tack is not um, a, a lack of respect for her work, but simply I found maybe a bit more evidence uh, for a slightly different interpretation. It's more like that. Um, And one of the ways that she and I uh, differ is that um, it is about how such a thing may have originally evolved versus what it could then be good for later, right? Mm -hmm. So when I was looking at uh, those paper in Orca, those papers in Orca, you know, I wasn't seeing a lot of evidence for her model, which is that it's particularly good for caretaking of that third generation. That if you're not busy with babies of your own, because God knows our babies are really needy. I mean, yes. they're just useless. I love my kids, but can you 
not hold up your own head for how long? <laughs> for how long are you this useless? You know what I mean? Um, and how long is our postpartum recovery, actually, which she doesn't talk yes. a lot about. But remember that we human beings come into the world with literally broken mothers, okay? Mm -hmm. There's a deep interdependence. And I don't mean that in a denigrating way. I've gone through it. No. There's just that deep interdependence in our social web when we're in our postpartum periods, yes. which frankly only just now is getting more attention yes, than anywhere in the science. So, mm -hmm. Yes. 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 The, fourth, and extending the fourth trimester, out. as it were. Yeah. And not just those three months, though, although, yes, also those three months, but the ways in which both brain changes and cardiovascular effects and even your freaking liver are still adapting up to a year later, sometimes longer. Right. So which is to say um, we it really matters that our babies are so needy, not simply because of the babies, but because of what the maternal body does to mm. recover. Yeah. yeah. Um, so absolutely, this is shaping things. So the idea that maybe menopause could be a kind of great thing, that there would be an end point to our deeply stupid pregnancies. Come on. Right. I'm just saying compared to other primates. All right. You know, um, could obviously be good for many, many reasons. But one of the things that I found looking at that killer whale data was like, hmm. Now, this is not to say that we necessarily do menopause the way that they do. OK, mm -hmm. but they're not spending a lot of time taking extra care of the grandbabies. No. That's not their deal. Now, in, in the transient orcopods, they are taking care of their sons a lot because the sons stay with the was, mother for the entire lifespan. Mm -hmm. And they are all, every single transient killer whale is a mama's boy. He just clings to her in beautiful, beautiful, weird, fishy, but actually mammalian ways. And unfortunately, he also then dies sooner if she passes on. Um, Interesting. So, that was striking mm -hmm. that, that orca whales not only experienced menopause, but also that they passed down their social network to their male offspring and, and yep. not female yep. offspring, making them a little bit weird in that way as well in the animal kingdom. Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. It's um, They're unusual in many ways, not simply because they're evolved from deer that went back into the water and decided to be whales, as it were. Um, but what was cool that. about okay. them, yeah, basically deer-like things. That's okay. where all cetaceans come from. Go back into the water. They're like, screw this land thing. This seemed like a bad idea. I'm going back in. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. And we're going to we're going to lose we're going to lose our hindquarters while we're at it because it's not useful in water. So no. The So no, the evolution no. So the evolution of cetaceans is is a lot of fun. You can have fun with that later. Anyway, but no, but what these um menopausal uh, killer whales are doing is mostly providing deep wisdom to their pod. And what I mean by wisdom in this case is knowing how to survive crises that don't come up that often. Yeah. So not simply being matriarchs, which is just to say leaders in the way that social creatures who have such structures tend to benefit from strong leaders. Okay, fine. Um, but also simply, oh, this food supply hasn't run out in a while, but I happen to literally remember the last time this happened and I know how to lead my pod to other sources of food because you know, the fish or what have you have run out over here, right? Or I'm going to be more deeply involved in teaching the younger generations how to do novel hunting techniques, like mm -hmm. that thing where they all line up like linebackers on a football field and bum rush an ice flow to knock a seal off the top of it, which is very good for the killer whale and not great for the seal, but is really cool if you've ever seen a video of it. At least it's something I respect. How about that? Yes, right. Absolutely. So the, yeah, so these uh, so-called grandmothers, these menopausal orca, 
are not valued for their daycare qualities. Yeah, they're valued for what they know. They're valued because in some social groups, it is useful to have literally lived long enough to remember stuff and then share that knowledge with the group because many members of the group are simply too young to have encountered such a thing before. Okay. And so I thought that was a really useful frame for why we might end up evolving something like menopause in the human species, which is to say maybe menopause isn't something originally selected for, which um, Chris, which Hawks is sort of implying it might have been. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But rather is something, quote, revealed. And this is something that Susan Alberts has talked a bit a bit about in her own analysis of uh, primate ovarian senescence, how ovaries age across mm -hmm. primates, not just us. And that's a paper from 2013. You know, in, in the revealed model, what that means is that somehow, for various reasons, um, our species evolves to live longer in general. A 60-year-old human woman is aging but a 60-year-old female chimp is falling the hell apart. Her teeth are falling out. She has big, bald patches of hair. She is just kind of collapsing into what a biologist would call senescence, mm -hmm. into aging. Yeah, yes. in the way that actually we resist it for a lot, lot longer. That's what it is to have a lifespan hmm. that's longer. It's usually pushing off. It's changing that slope of what yes. aging looks like and also pushing off the onset of the biggest part of it. Yeah. Makes and sense. so. Yeah. So what that means is that our bodies then at some point in our evolutionary past are selecting for longevity, probably through a number of different random mutations that are helping our bodies live longer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But our ovaries may still have not quite gotten the message <laughs> mm -hmm. that our ovaries are running the old monkey plan, as mm -hmm. it were, because remember that our bodies, right, aren't always quite on the same program. So then menopause, which is literally simply the fact that we live a full third of our average lives after uh, ovulation has stopped, right? It's not the stopping of the ovulation that is menopause. It's the longevity after stopping reproducing. So menopause is always a longevity story. It's always a living longer story, right? It, it's about that stretch of time, really. Mm -hmm. We pay all this attention to the shutdown of the ovaries. We're like, this is the story of menopause. But actually, no, everything that happens after is the story of menopause. Yeah. That's a beautiful so if that, reframe, actually, because we do so often get caught up in just those, those years that mark menopause mm -hmm. and not the many years that mark the post-menopausal yeah. experience. Yeah, absolutely. Not simply as a social failure, right? In that way that we continually erase uh, women of all types and people with ovaries of all types, but that we also particularly erase those of us who are older, right? Yes. I haven't hit menopause yet. There are ways in which I'm looking forward to it, ways in which I'm not moving on, I right? Agree. But yeah, but it is absolutely for a biologist. It is absolutely a longevity story. It's absolutely the story of what comes after. And, and the rest of us would do well to think of it in that frame too, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So what's beautiful about that, I think, is that maybe Hawks is right and maybe there were, as it were, daycare perks in the grandmother hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Maybe there were reduced competition between mother and daughter in that hypothesis, but that's like a secondary add-on. That the mm -hmm. big boost, the big thing that gets selected for is simply the value of the elderly. The value of having members in an interconnected social group that freaking know stuff yes. and can tell the younger folks stuff, even perhaps before you have language, but certainly once you do have language. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That are wisdom keepers, that are existing Elders. within a space of culture mm -hmm. to confer wisdom, to confer 
information about those events that we might not see with much consistency. Again, to harken yeah. back to the orca whales. Um, yeah. You know, so I revise it and I call it the wise grandmother hypothesis. Yes. I was like, okay, maybe that's what it should be called. And then the rest of this is, an, is maybe something that's useful later. But really the big deal, the big deal is that we need to change how we think about the value of the elderly. Yes, absolutely. And what their inclusion in culture, as I think mm -hmm. it, it's relatively recent that we have sort of eschewed the elderly and, and sort of pushed that off. And I know on this podcast, we've spoken a lot in the ways in which we push away death and the elderly, um, sure. both and, and that having, that having a piece of that, but I really enjoyed exploring the idea that this was about conferring wisdom to the group, um, mm -hmm. whether that was in an agricultural setting, whether that was in a pre-agricultural setting, or even mm -hmm. just in the sense, one of the stories you tell is one of gynecology, which is, mm -hmm. is something mm -hmm. that is a feature throughout EVE, um, mm -hmm. gynecology as a tool that it was remembrance maybe mm -hmm. not to tug on the placenta, that that had caused hemorrhaging in the past and to be mm -hmm. able to confer that wisdom and further the species, as it were. Uh, one would hope. One would hope. One would hope. It seems so uh, remarkably true that um, we are actively working to forget uh, that right now. That's a subtle way of saying it uh, in the United States. But mm -hmm. I will say that on uh, Tuesday of last week, Ohio remembered. Yes, a, lo a so lot of there's that. There was a, a pretty big wave of remembering last week mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. during that. Mm -hmm. Yes, I hope we keep going with that. Yes, a lot of suffering is going to be reduced if we do. Yes, I could not agree more. Um, I want to dive in. You know, you touch on so many things, and and one one piece before we begin to wrap up that I'd love to dive into is love, because you ask a question in the love chapter is love what makes us human? And mm -hmm. I've been thinking a lot about sort of what makes us human or, or more what makes us animal this year. And your exploration of love and how, what an evolutionary quagmire of culture and social mores and mm -hmm. biological evolution and mm -hmm the matching of various aspects of biology that has to happen and what that mm -hmm. might say about the structure of love and sex uh, throughout our evolution was, I think, for me, a really striking feature of Eve. Uh, just the, the breadth with which you explore this topic. And so, you know, we don't, just in a broad stroke way, um, exploring how our biology and culture interact within that space. Oh, wow. Um, it is a broad and rich and clearly complicated topic yes. in every way you could possibly imagine, but I can yeah. tell you exactly how this chapter comes about. Perfect. I keep getting asked as I'm working over those 10 years, uh, questions that have to do with human mating strategies, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of the people who are asking me these questions don't realize that's what they're asking me. <laughs> you know what I mean? But mm -hmm. that's fine too, because mm -hmm. everyone has different frames of reference and not everybody has to think like a scientist. I feel passionately that science should be for everybody, no matter your background, right? Yes. So um, 
So, so I would get these questions about whether or not it's true that uh, male human beings always, quote, want to have multiple female partners because it is, quote, more natural for a male to want such things. I know the N-word, that other N-word, the natural word, <laughs> right? I get, But I get that a lot, right? Because, you know, as soon as you're in biology, everyone's like, ah, you're going to tell us how we should be. And I'm like, I don't know. Have you met penguins? We shouldn't necessarily look to nature to say that's how we should be. Penguins are terrible. <laughs> I'll leave you to the internet for that. Um, you know, I've already ruined enough birds for everybody, ducks especially. In <laughs> but <laughs> I, I raise ducks, so I have, I have firsthand knowledge of everything oh my about god. them. Oh god, I know. And oh, oh, okay. And don't and I'll do this and then we'll come back. Just do not Google something like duck rape in YouTube. You know, don't do a search for that because the algorithm will then decide that that's definitely what you want to see from then on. Just do that. Just as I've discovered, unfortunately from firsthand knowledge, there're just people just filming this stuff like in their backyard, not even scientists, uh of terrible things that ducks are doing to each other and there's part of my brain that's like, "Oh my god, help her." Help, you're not a scientist. What are you doing? Chase those males away. Come on, help her. What the hell is happening? And you can hear them giggling in the back. Anyway, moving on from the horrors of the internet. Our um, geese prevent it from happening. Um, I, I oh, have nice. geese that do not appreciate uh, duck rape culture and will pull male ducks off of female ducks as it's as it's occurring. I have so much more respect for geese now. <laughs> Did not know that. I know them as the weird, toothy, hissing cousin of the prettier ducks. But actually, they're so mad. They're so mad, though. So mad. Although people don't always realize how mad swans are. But yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. More angry. So angry, very so beautiful, angry, very angry, so aggressive, so strong. Anyway, moving on from the birds. Yeah. So, so lots of people then were asking me to somehow tell them what human beings are supposed mm -hmm. to do in our mating strategies and in our mm -hmm. child rearing strategies and what the hell marriage is supposed to represent. And this mm -hmm. very loaded question of what is natural. Yeah. Yeah. And I happen to know that our written history is a few handfuls of thousands of years. Our um, archaeological history into the Neolithic is not that much longer than that, and that our species is 300,000 years old. And then hominins, of course, uh, pre-human hominins are stretching millions before that. So there's this way in which we make this common mistake. There is a fallacy in assuming that looking out of what, what we know about how human beings behave now should somehow model to how we've always done it. And that simply counting the types of behavioral features across different cultures now, that means, oh, whatever is most common now is then going to be what we must have been doing. You know what I mean? Beautiful. So we yes. make a huge mistake when we talk about a lot of what something you and I might call rape culture across cultures. We make a huge mistake when we think about what we call a patriarchy uh, in the human sense, you know, in the female oppressive sense and saying, this is the human past. And I'm like, dude, there's a lot we have no idea about in yes. the human past. None at all. So one of the things that I do in the love chapter is to say, well, behavior evolves fast. That's actually one of the major features of our species, that we can do stuff to find workarounds for our bodies that rapidly outpace the standard physiological evolution. You know, that the reason we are still alive, of course, is that while our uterus and uh, birth outlet is so incredibly buggy, uh, we are able to assist one another in our reproductive destinies. And this is why our, our species manages to come to be at all. 
Yeah. But it is also the case then that one of the better places to look for what our mating strategies might have been is not simply one culture versus another and how we may or may not marry each other now or which body we may or may not have sex with now on the average, right? Um, but rather look to the physiology uh, itself because that evolves more slowly and that actually tells you a lot more about what might have been the dominant model. Yes. Yeah. Again, so, our bodies are telling a story. Our bodies tell the story of what they are from where they come from. Yes, yes, absolutely. And one of the central stories that you see across the hominin line is a reduction in male-male competition, mm -hmm. which is really interesting, actually. Um, that we don't really look like creatures who came from harems. So that's like the gorilla, one mm -hmm. big male and a lot of little females. Our bodies are not telling that story. No. But we also don't really seem to look a lot like chimps over time with a lot of male-male competition in a promiscuous environment, having sex with kind of everybody. Yeah. Because male and female sexual dimorphism is actually shrinking across the hominin line by many features. Uh, not simply the reduction of the eye teeth, those are your canines, which are always slightly longer and pointier in uh, males and primates. But even in the human male, you're more likely to get a Tom Cruise as a Tom Cruise, you see. That, um, yeah, some of them are, you know, our females do, and it is diverse, mm -hmm. and diversity is a beautiful thing, and evolution diversity is a feature, not a bug. Yes. But still, it is tied to biological maleness, those eye teeth, which are actually a show trait, which are a competitive thing between males in the primate line, possibly all the way back in the mammalian line, actually. So you see those literally shrinking back into the heads. You also see the female body kind of growing and the male body kind of shrinking towards uh, a reduction in difference. Guys are bigger than gals, as it were, stereotypically, uh, you know, just on average, but not as much as in a chimp and way not as much as in something like a gorilla, gorilla. Yeah. you know? And of course, likewise, the, uh, well, the testicles. I spent a mm -hmm. lot of time talking about testicles. You do. And I do, I do. In, in many walks of my life these days, actually, if you see The Daily Show, I just uh, have a whole side gig in, in balls right now. It's interesting. Um, <laughs> it's fine, it's fine. We all have our walks in life. Um, mine are a little bit swinging. It's fine. So, um, so in the human uh, testicular arrangement, we have kind of a middling size. And the reason that's interesting is that in uh, something like a harem, you tend to have tiny little balls, just kind of mm -hmm. like little peanuts. Just gorillas. Little, tiny just, little yeah. balls. Gorillas have tiny little balls. Yep. Exactly. Um, and just like a just like a little tic-tac, just kind of not much there, mm -hmm. even though the rest of his body, of course, is massive. And that's because his sperm literally don't need to compete as much. Mm -hmm. And why would you build all this tissue to make all that sperm if you don't need to, to get your yep. fertility on? Yep. The chimps, meanwhile, have absolutely massive knockers down there, just yep. huge, huge for a body size like that. Like, why do they even have to walk around with all that? And that's, of course, because they're very promiscuous and their sperm are quite literally competing, sometimes in rapid succession, yes. uh, with the sperm of others, right? So you have to literally make more of it to kind of blitzkrieg the damn cervix mm -hmm. in the hopes of winning out. For those of us in ag, model. you know, sheep testicles, there you quite go. large. There you go. Exactly. In part because there is competition there yes. in a wild environment, yes. which again, evolves much more slowly than behavior, right? Um, so, you know, if you're working in agriculture, of course, you're working with bodies that evolve in non-agricultural conditions in many cases. Exactly. Although some with of them have been selected for, but yes. Yeah, we yeah. talk a lot about the the folly of domestication and some of the, yeah. the things that happen as we diverge from that wild progenitor. 
Mm -hmm. And anyone in your listener group who has horses will have fun with that in my book, because I talk quite a bit about horses and their yes. mating strategies and how yes. modern uh, paddocks and stables really don't don't quite align in useful ways with breeding. Anyway, so have fun with that, dear listener. Yes. So, um, so of course, the chimp has huge balls and uh, the human body produces kind of Goldilocks testicles, not too big not too small, just right in the middle there, which tells us more of a story about our trajectory of mating strategies than, than any current marital norms would do. Yes. And you do a beautiful job with this. And I mean, everything within the context of the book, but I, I really appreciated the depth with which you explored this and the way that you used biology to tell that story and mm. to look back at what may have been and and what bodies have to say about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to mm -hmm. thank you. I know we're I know we're getting close on time, and I want to I want to wrap up. And the last thing I really do want to come back to, and I know that we touched on this in the beginning, but I do want to ask because so much of this felt to me to be about story, both the story of all of these Eves, the story of our bodies, the story of some of these evolutionary traits, whether it's wombs or milk or love or voice, and various different things that I wanna come back to just at the end here briefly, this idea of choice and agencies and to, to really ask you that question of, how do the stories that we tell ourselves right now affect the future and the future of our species? I mean, the and I know that's a big question. In every way you could possibly imagine. Yeah. yeah? Um, but in terms of providing my readers and your listeners then more empowerment, more agency, more of a sense of the ability to provide the sort of impact you would want to provide, and also the abilities to feel at home in your own weird-ass mammalian body, yeah, which often, frankly, is not a common feeling. A lot of people, femme or otherwise, don't feel very at home in their bodies, especially as they change over time. Dear Lord, right? I guess I would just offer that um, you and I and everyone we know is already the best authority on the world on what it's been like to live in our individual bodies. No one can tell you better what it's been like to be you living in that body. That is a deep and sacred knowledge that you have, and no one could or should ever be able to take that away from you. What a book like mine does is gives a different frame of understanding what you already know. A different sort of set of tools, especially linguistic tools, you know, different sets of words to use to describe what you already know about what it's been like, and a different way of tracing where all of that might come from, mm -hmm. such that you can then build an understanding of what you are as something that is both very particularly you and now and contemporary but also deeply historied. And then you get to choose how much of that history feels good to you or how much of that history you're ready to walk away from. 
I could not leave it in a more beautiful place than what you just said. Thank you for, you are an incredible wordsmith. You are an incredible narrator. You are an incredible researcher. The book was an absolute delight. I highly recommend it to everyone. And I will put in again my bid that your your narration on the audiobook is stellar. So I think it's, it's worth checking out both both versions of that. Tell people where they can find you and then we'll we'll wrap things up. Um, so I am on the Twitter. Sorry, mm-hmm. the X. Mm-hmm. The X. Well, um, I don't know if we'll that ever call evil, it that. But that evil space that exists but also isn't always evil. I'm there. I don't do a lot with it, but I am there. You can find me there. Um, just my name would be the handle. But also I have a website, catbohannon.com. Um, and there are... Uh, places there where you can find some of the media I've done. And of course, I am on tour. So the tour that I am on, you can find that there as well. Um, And Eve is sold pretty much everywhere in the world that books are sold at this point. Uh, Yeah. No matter which language you speak, actually, things are coming out almost every day, it seems. Yeah. Good. That's exciting. It's well-deserved. Kat, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for this book. I am excited to hear what everyone thinks after, after diving in. Yeah, thanks for listening. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. If what you found resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts? This act of reciprocity helps others find Mind, Body, and Soil. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Kate underscore Kavanaugh, that's K-A-T-E underscore K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for the clips from their beautiful song Over the Edge from their album The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.